The stories in this book have been told and retold, cherished and revered by literally billions of people over thousands of years. People have devoted their entire lives to studying this book. There are hundreds of thousands of commentaries on it. And many people believe that this book had to have been written by God. The Torah, what's so special about it? Why is it so mesmerizing? And how has it managed to capture the human imagination for millennia? I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at Ikar in Los Angeles, and together we're going to study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. Okay, folks, are you ready for Talking Rocks? If you've read the Torah before, you probably know that there's a story right at the beginning with a talking snake. Maybe you've even come across the story later on in the Book of Numbers with a talking donkey. So you're used to reading some weird supernatural stuff in this literature. But this week, things get close to absurd when we run into a bunch of rocks. That's right, inanimate stones on the ground having a conversation with one another. Now, to be fair, this isn't in the Torah itself, but it appears in the famous medieval commentary of Rashi, and he's citing a passage from the Talmud, so it is classic Jewish literature, and it forces us to ask what I think is one of the central questions in biblical interpretation. Are we really supposed to believe this stuff? Especially when it comes to the wild stories of the Midrash, which is the classical mode of rabbinic interpretation, I find myself asking again and again, wait, are they serious? Do they really mean this literally? And do they expect us to take it literally? And then, of course, with our talking snakes and donkeys, we can turn and ask the same questions of the Torah itself. So, talking rocks. Let's set the stage first. Jacob is fleeing from home after having tricked his father into giving him his brother's blessing and sent that brother into a homicidal rage. Jacob's mother, Rebekah, has sent him to Haran to stay with his uncle for a while. But on the way there, he stops for the night to sleep and has his famous dream with the ladder that stretches up to heaven. And just as he gets ready to go to sleep, we read that Vayikach me'avne'amakom he took from the stones of the place and put them around his head and he lay down in the place. Okay, minor detail. He used some rocks for a pillow. Doesn't sound that comfortable, but that's fine. Then comes the dream. The ladder, angels going up and down, God standing above. I mean, talk about weird supernatural imagery. But that was a dream, after all. And then he wakes up and we read this. And now, see if you can spot something odd, something that's changed in this line. Vayashkem Yaakov Baboker, Jacob got up in the morning, Vayikach et ha'even asher sam mirashotav, and he took the stone that he had placed around his head. Did you catch that? The stone. He's about to use that stone to make a monument there. But before he went to sleep, it said he took stones, several, and place them around his head. So how did many stones become one stone? 
And how do you place one stone around your head anyway? Now, you might say this is imprecise wording. Maybe Jacob took one of the stones that he had used to sleep on. But Rashi won't accept that kind of sloppy answer. So instead he says this, he took from the stones of the place and put them around his head. That is, Asan Kamin Marzev. He placed them like a gutter pipe around his head, for he feared wild animals. And then they began to quarrel with one another. This one said, Alaya niach tzadik al rosho. Let the righteous one rest his head on me. And that one would say, he should rest it on me. So suddenly God turned them into one stone. And that's why it says later, and Jacob took the stone that he had placed around his head. Oh, well, that explains it. God took all the stones and fused them together to stop them from fighting. Now they can all have the great honor of having Jacob, the righteous, lie on them. Problem solved. Yeah, problem solved, but more problem created. I mean, let's leave aside the question of whether or not God performs these kinds of tiny makeshift miracles at all. At least we can imagine a theology that says God can do this sort of thing. But what about these rocks? Not only do they talk, they fight, they want things, they know who Jacob is. I mean, is this really my religion? Enter Rabbi Yehuda Lowy the 16th century Jewish philosopher known as the Maharal of Prague. And speaking of the supernatural, you may have heard legends of the Maharal because he was said to have created the Golem, a kind of Jewish Frankenstein, in order to defend the Jewish community of Prague from, from blood libel attacks. Now, I don't know about all that, but what I do know is that he was one of the greatest thinkers in Jewish history. And his first book, which was called Gur Arye, was a running commentary on Rashi's commentary. That's what they call a super commentary. And his piece on this particular story is one of the most important explanations of how to read religious texts that I've ever come across. He starts with the same basic difficulty that we had. If you will ask, he says, what quarrel was there for stones who have no consciousness? This is what people ask. But these people do not know the intention of the sages who wrote these texts. Well, excuse me, so what is the intentions of the sages, Rabbi Lowy? He continues, It is known that Jacob embodied oneness, which is why his children said to him on his deathbed, Just as there is only oneness in your heart, so there is only oneness in our hearts. And this is what caused the fight amongst the rocks. Because... A totally elevated thing is one in every way, and multiplicity cannot interact with it at all, only unity. This is why there was a quote-unquote quarrel with each one, saying, let the righteous one lay his head on me. The rocks, purely physical things, represented multiplicity, but God turned them into one, and then they could join with Jacob. Whoa, this is all pretty abstract. But I think what he's saying is that Jacob was so connected to God that his being manifested a spirit of oneness, a reflection of the oneness of God and the underlying oneness of all being. 
And that meant that everything he came into contact with was brought under this spirit of oneness. In other words, the world became more godly as he moved through it. He was bringing the spirit of God into everything he touched. Okay, that's very beautiful. But the question remains, did the rocks talk or not? Does he mean that this story is all just a metaphor for spiritual experience? Or does he mean that God actually united rocks for Jacob? Did this happen or not? Well, the Maharal has a surprising answer to this question. He says, whether you say that it actually happened, that the rocks became one, or you say that in a vision the stone was one, as J Jacob had reached an elevated state, and then afterwards it returned to the way it was, makes no difference. For natural things operate according to nature. But this event was not natural. For on that night, everything was operating above the natural order. The purpose of this story, he's saying, is to communicate a profound spiritual truth. So we should be reading it for its spiritual content, not as a simple tale of talking rocks. And if your primary question when you read it is whether or not it actually happened, you're missing the point. You want to say that God performed a real miracle and the rocks actually transformed? Fine. You prefer to think of this all as the product of a vision, images from an altered state of consciousness? Fine. It doesn't matter. It's totally beside the point. In fact, the Maharal seems frustrated to have to even explain this, which seems so obvious to him. And he closes with a bit of a tirade against people who want to take these kinds of religious stories literally. I was forced to write these words, he says, to enlighten these blind-hearted men who take words that contain the secrets of the world and turn them into words of void, as if they had no substance, words of stupidity. For each word in this image is a wondrous thing, and one should not think the things I explained are the root and essence of the matter. They are but the beginning of understanding in the smallest way what is possible for beginners. Further, you should know that if you search after the words of the sages as if they were buried treasures, then you will find a storehouse of precious vessels. So, is the Maharal saying that these stories are just symbolic? That they aren't really true? No, just the opposite. They are truer than you think. Truer than they would be if you just read them simply, literally. We tell stories like this to express things that are so profound that words can't actually contain them. So the words we use are the best ones we have from our physical experience to point towards a spiritual level of reality. So how do we read the most fantastic, far-out, supernatural images in our religious texts? What do we do with the talking rocks and the talking snakes? Did these things happen or not? I believe that the Maharal was a deeply pious man, but he also clearly was a man with a sharp tongue. So I think he probably would have said that if you don't believe they happened at all, well, you're a heretic. But if you believe they happened exactly as they're told, well, then you're a fool.
Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and edited by Vera Blossom, and our theme song is Pitrouli by Hillel Tigay. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already? If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ecar.org and donate or Venmo us at ecarla. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot and see you next week. Thank you.